I grew up around literally like old McDonald-ish type farms where you'd go and they'd have a few pigs and a chicken mm-hmm. coop and some cows and stuff. And that it doesn't exist anymore. It's, At least uh, not it, very often. Yeah, I actually no. I just took a trip out west, a uh, road trip out west and went past so many feedlots, like yeah. large cattle feedlots. And it's just, you know, is, is that the best thing that we can do? Can we do better? Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am Shane Moss. You are a wonderful, curious person who is listening to this show uh, who is full of everything that's good. Congratulations, listeners. You have all of the good things. Um, today, I am continuing. I've, I've told you I've been working with uh, last year. I had connected with some really cool guests at the University of uh, Tennessee, and I started uh, kind of working with this One Health Initiative which basically means they give me a list of cool people and I interview them. And uh, and it's been a, a really fun relationship getting to um, dig into everything that they do uh, from kind of an interdisciplinary perspective. And we're going to hear a little more about that if you haven't heard about it in the past. But today's guest is Marcy Souza is joining me today. Who Marcy, I usually just have my guests introduce themselves because um, I am the worst and always forget everything and screw it up. So um, do you know anything about yourself? What do you do? Well, sometimes I'm interesting to myself. Sometimes I'm not, but I'll try and be interesting <laughs> today. <laughs> um, yeah. That's... So <laughs> but that's the whole point of this, right? Is to make science interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ideally. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'm a professor at the university of Tennessee college of veterinary medicine. And, uh, usually when I tell people I'm a veterinarian, they usually ask me, well, I do large or small animals. Uh, and the answer is neither, really. So I actually specialize in public health. A lot of folks don't really know what that means. But historically, veterinarians have been kind of the backbone of food safety and preventing disease spillover from animals to humans. And so that's sort of my area of specialty. And I've been here for since 2005. So I've been here for a while. I guess I'm a true Tennessean now. So um, so I'm curious. It's Let's see. It's August 2021. Um, we've all had a really interesting last 16 months or so. <laughs> what? Uh, why should the public care about disease spillover from <laughs> a- animals? Can you? I, it's can really you not explain that why that would be of interest <laughs> to anybody. Yeah. So it's it it has been very interesting. Um, because of course, as a public health veterinarian, you don't actually, most people don't really pay attention to you. You know, you have to teach epidemiology, which most people find to be pretty boring. You teach about these diseases. Really? That spill. Oh yeah. Um, I would have thought epidemiology would be the, it, like, I have a harder time with the nuts and bolts kind of like microbiology. Like, yeah, but it's not, epidemiology is definitely not as sexy as like surgery or ophthalmology, things like that. And so our, our classes always get 
pretty bad student reviews. <laughs> really? Yeah, and it's not because we're bad teachers. It's just because they're like, this isn't relevant. I don't need to know this. And so, <laughs> and, and so you know, honestly, like a year and a half ago, you know, I just kind of did my stuff at my job and half the college probably didn't really necessarily know who I was. They sort of did. But then all of a sudden COVID shows up and the public health veterinarian. who's important all of a sudden. who knows some stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. And so a couple of my colleagues, you know, I've got a few other public health veterinarians that I work with, and we were really instrumental in coming up with the policies and plans to keep the hospital working. And, you know, I think it's just that knowledge of, while this is no, no longer a disease of animals, it's really a disease of people, it probably spilled out of bats, right? Whether it went through a, a lab in a Chinese city somewhere, we don't know, but um, yeah. it's coronavirus has come from bats. And yeah. uh, I think that knowledge and how infectious disease and epidemiology works was sort of valuable this year, much to the detriment of my mental health, because <laughs> I ended up basically having two jobs. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So we'll see how the, the next six months go. Well, what are you, where are you putting your money on the lab leak thing? I'm going, I put my money on no lab leak. You want, would you like to me to tell you why? Yes. Yes, please. It's mostly because the people that are mostly interested in forwarding lab leaks tend to have more of an agenda of, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, building a narrative of distrust with science than they do of getting down to the bottom of things. It seems because there, there, you'd think if like there was a lab leak, those people be like, there was a lab leak. Everyone quick wear masks and get vaccinated. My God. But that's not actually the, it's, it's more of like, uh, there was a lab leak. Don't trust these people. Don't trust anything that science has to say ever. And because they caused this. And so also don't let them fix it. Seems to be a lot of the narrative that exists out there on social media. And so, and also my other reasoning is, is they tend to not make falsifiable predictions. They tend to like, like the who could come in and be like, there was a lab leak. I'd be like, I was wrong. You win the bet. But there is if the who says there wasn't a lab leak, that's just more evidence that they're hiding things. There's for, so there's <laughs> there's nothing there that could ever possibly be falsified. There's no way I could ever win that bet because the person taking it would never pay me no matter what evidence is shown. So that's just based on that is why I tend to lean like, yeah, maybe not lab leak. But compelling i'd certainly love to know if it is a lab leak well sure but you know i think in addition to what you said is there's also kind of that xenophobia that goes along with it of well let's make the chinese right. be the bad guys right um, right because i a think if, if, you, if you blame it on them it's not our fault for uh you know having more and more people on the planet and ruining ecosystems and having this interaction that i didn't do it someone else fixed this problem yeah. yeah well and it's not the first coronavirus to spill out of bats either yeah, yeah. So if you look in history, just in the last, you know, 15 years, this is the third one. I guess yeah. 20 years. It's the third one. So one of them is going to stick. I have, I have a real, and, and maybe this is why I like epidemiology more than the average person, is I have a real fondness for um, for evolution and emergent properties and systems that come to the surface. And and I think, uh, I think that requires a bit of... Uh, some of the things are counterintuitive and where, whereas if you kind of have a top down thinking about everything, um, uh, you, you can top down thinkers tend to think it was like a lab or there's like things plotting against you or whatever and tend to ignore that. No, these things can just emerge from this 
this whole insane myriad of causations of loss of biodiversity and uh, and uh, global travel and all of these other factors, you combine them in just such a way and, hey, some viruses pop up from time to time and it's no one, no one likes to deal with that, but it's a reality. I think if we're going to make a movie, though, the lab leak theory is a better idea. Like it's well, definitely a better movie. That's why I, that's the other reason why I don't trust it is because, you know, <laughs> I, I, before I didn't do remote podcasts before COVID, I, I would, I would come to your, your lab, your office, uh, your house, whatever, and record with you, each one of my guests. And so I saw like the situation that you're, I mean, people can see on the camera right now. It's not, it's not really like a mad scientist sort of situation that you see in in the movies. There's not just <laughs> beakers. You're not wearing a lab coat, and may, maybe as soon as you turn off the camera, you get out all of all yeah, of this, that. Yeah, this is all just a fake facade behind me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so yeah, I think I think people get their concept of science from the movies, and the lab leak thing definitely feels more like a movie plot. And again, I could be wrong. I'm happy to be proven. It would be it would be fantastic to. It certainly wouldn't be the first time there was a lab leak either. Um, it's just that we in preparing for the future, I feel like understanding things that like what one one health the One Health Initiative is doing, which is uh, raising awareness and bringing this to people's attention of things like oh the climate change. And loss of biodiversity and uh, and aspects of our modern living are actually going to make more of these. Even if this, say this is a lab leak, there's still going to be zoonosis that will impact us in the future. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, probably more often than that, even considering our modern um, climate and conditions. So either way, it, it, it just it just seems like a, a way that people dismiss things and so they don't have to think about it or do anything about it. So that's, that's my opinionated take <laughs> on it. Uh, I'm sure a lot of my listeners are like, uh, think you're a fool. Bill Gates did all, not a lot of my listeners, but <laughs> so, some people, people out, out there, there on social media. Yeah, for sure. So, so anyway, so you've, um, boy, that's, I didn't realize I had so many rants in my pants. So, <laughs> You had first off. Let me little tangent. Have you ever played the game Pandemic? Um, I have not. Oh, it's fantastic! You mean other than what we're doing right now, like an actual game? There's an actual board game called Pandemic. It's one of my favorite board games that there is, and it's it's a it, it would be a fun way to like get kids into epidemiology, actually, because it's about. It's, uh, you have the whole globe and there's viruses popping up and you got to do different things to control them. It's really fun. Anyway, I'm still caught up on the fact that people didn't like epidemiology. But how are your teacher <laughs> reviews now that there's a global pandemic? Have people been appreciating uh, well, year, you a bit more? Last year, everything was a little weird because we were teaching virtually. Yeah, um, that's a sampling mm -hmm. error right there. You can't yeah, really so tell anything from that. Yeah, so we just kind of ignore that. that year. I mean, honestly, usually my teaching reviews are pretty good because fortunately I don't teach the direct epidemiology. I teach more of applied epidemiology with zoonotic diseases. What's, and so, what's, what's that mean? Well, like, so like when you think about when you actually teach epidemiology, you're teaching, okay, what's the difference between prevalence and incidence and how do you 
calculate risk rates and sensitivity and specificity. And so they get bogged down in doing the math. And so I actually mm. take the those concepts and apply them to, okay, let's talk about West Nile virus or Rocky Mountain spotted fever or rabies or things like that. And so take those concepts, but actually apply them to a certain disease so that they've got this little baseline that they learn before they get me. So the class is split in half, essentially. And so my colleague, he gets stuck teaching the, okay, here's how you calculate sensitivity. And they all go, oh, do I really need to know this? Um, <laughs> so usually I can get decent student reviews by, uh, you know, coming up with fun stories. There's, I, whenever gets, I talk about what, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> sorry. To, well, I, that's, it was actually my very next question was what gets people's ears perked up? Because when you say, can I guess? Yeah. Rabies. Yeah, rabies. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So people, because rabies, so it's usually like two or three lectures. And, you know, I tell various stories. And one of the stories that's always humorous is I think it was maybe, I don't know, three or four years ago. Um, you can get on these listservs about disease outbreaks or individual, you know, cases of particularly rabies. And there was a mm. uh, rabid <laughs> beaver at a, a lake in North Carolina that was attacking oh. people. <laughs> I just had this whole conversation with my uncle got bit by a beaver one time, a rabid beaver. That had to hurt. Their teeth are huge. Their teeth are so huge and they can cut through trees and everything. Cause I, well, I got, I've been getting into beavers lately because I've, I've, I got into stand up paddle boarding lately. Okay. Yeah. And there's these areas around me that I've been going where I, I see beavers and they are, they're exceptionally skittish creatures and they they have you can't get even if you're floating and very quiet and you just are floating toward them and don't move they are they'll see their whole tail situation it's for storing fat as well but the reason why it's flat is to slap and scare things off and you can't get anywhere near one of those things and so rabies must be a heck of a thing if it's making (laughs) beavers turn the other way and be like i'm gonna attack that crazy bearded guy on a mm-hmm. device I've never seen before who's holding a huge stick. Stick, Yeah. So that's one of the stories that usually the students are like, what? Really? <laughs> and so then you'd use those little stories like that to, to catch them and then they get interesting. Yeah. What's up with rabies? Can you, I, I know, I know we didn't plan on talking about all this, but I'm having too much fun. Uh, and I want to know because I was having arguments with people about this recently. I'm like, you can't, people are like, you should watch out for those beavers <laughs> just because, because my uncle had, you know, when it's like, uh, when someone, you know, had something like bizarre impact them. And then it's like the availability heuristic or whatever. They think it's more, more of a prevalent yep. situation than it actually is. And so I've been having like, you know, beaver arguments with the fam recently. <laughs> not a common thing. <laughs> not, not a common thing. No. At all. <laughs> How does a beaver get? Is is rabies just pervasive amongst many species? Can a well, lot of so, different things? Happen? So it can infect any mammal. Wow. And so, yeah. So pretty. So That's it's amazing. kind of weird. So like you think most viruses are pretty species specific. Rabies yeah. is not. And so rabies can infect uh, pretty much any mammal. Some are a little bit more resistant. So for whatever reasons, like um, opossums, our Virginia opossums that we have in North America, just about never get rabies. Oh, There's wow. theories as to why I'm not exactly sure, but, um, but yeah, so typically like our rodents, 
you usually don't see a whole lot of rabies in rodents because most of our rodents huh. are small. And so if you have a rabid animal bite them, they just die They're from the wounds, dead. right? Yeah. And so the only rodents that usually will be diagnosed with rabies are uh, groundhogs or woodchucks and beavers because if they get something that by, can survive a fight. Yeah. yeah so okay. it survives That's a fight, so goes off, and you know, a month or two later, all of a sudden it's got rabies. Yeah, it's wow. only the bigger ones that. A month or two later, well, you just think you got away, and then you just start acting a little wonky. Yep. Yeah. And so the, another fun thing about rabies, if you don't know this, it actually travels. The virus physically travels up the, the neurons and has to go all the way to the brain. Yeah. So like, if you get bitten on your your big toe, your incubation period will be longer than if you get bitten on the face. Wow. Because I heard. I saw some weird thing. Was it just someone telling me about this? Either way, it sounded like BS, but they were like, <laughs> if you get bit by something that's rabid, you have like 48 hours or you're a goner. No, that's not true. Okay. Unless you get like bitten in the brain. Which probably <laughs> if you get is not bit in the happen. brain, get to a hospital yeah, for quick. a rabbit or not. No. So like the incubation for people usually is at least like a month or two. Like, you don't want to dilly-dally. Um, go ahead. Well, especially because, like, most people don't have rabies vaccines on board. So I like, imagine someone just kind of getting, like, slightly rabid, and then they're like, yeah, I'll get to it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No, usually once once people or animals, once they start to have symptoms of rabies, they usually die. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's, okay. there's, there's a very oh, so small handful that... of people that have survived, but it's almost 100% wow. fatality. So, like, if you do get bitten by a rabbit animal, so they actually just recently changed the importation laws that um, dogs from certain countries, I believe it's in, like, Eastern Europe, where there's a big rabies problem, that they're very much not allowing those importations because it's, you know, they're incubating as they're traveling, and then they end up with rabies a month or two later. Amazing. So, holy cow, that is... And then you're a goner. By the time you have symptoms, it's too late. Yeah, there's there's a handful of people that have survived, um, but it's wow. Rare. That is so good to know because I got to be honest with you, I'm like the type to get bit by a wild animal and be like, yeah, <laughs> whatever. It's fine. Yeah, I'll put some so, hydrogen peroxide on it. Yeah, depending on the animal. So certainly, like, I don't know where you where you actually are, but um, there's I'm in Wisconsin. Okay, yeah, so you probably have foxes. I don't know if you've got a ton of terrestrial rabies up there. You probably have some. Um, but, like, we've got raccoons and foxes and skunks down here, and then bats are everywhere that could potentially yeah. spread it. Yeah, we got some of that going on. Because isn't it once you get rabies or when a mammal gets rabies, doesn't it – what it – it just releases just tons of cortisol or something, right? You're just like amped up, like the oh. stress hormone oh. all, um, all the time. You mean that's why they're like that. that's why they act crazy? And and then yeah, like can't they can't they also doesn't it shut down the ability to sleep? And they can't sleep for like days, and then it's it I think I think you can't salivate or something. Well, you can't two, swallow. So it you can't swallow or yeah. yeah, you can salivate, but you can't swallow, so you're you're, you're basically salivating and you can't oh th that maybe that's what it is you're like starving because you can't swallow and then you're foaming and yeah, if you're in the mouth you've got all aggressive. this spit in your mouth that you can't swallow and then that also wow. because the because it's transmitted in saliva so that oh, you've got all that so saliva tricky. with the rabies in it 
Yeah, it's good. So basically, it paralyzes the swallowing muscles, and you end up with all this spit that, full of rabies. That's incredible. What what virus are you most impressed by, like phenotypically? Oh, oh man, I don't it's know. COVID's one, huh? pretty damn interesting. Like it is, huh? Well, it. I mean, everyone thinks that the that a pandemic, like the worst pandemic, would be something that had like a rabies fatality rate. But no way, because it would die out too fast and people would actually right. like pay attention to get vaccinated and take mm-hmm. <laughs> and like actually take precautions to prevent it. Because it's like, oh, God, I'm going to die. So I think mm-hmm. it's like when you play the the games of pandemic and there's also one of the CDC's website that if you're trying to design a, a pathogen to cause a pandemic, you actually want it to have a really low case fatality rate. Because yeah, people are like, well, it's not that big of a deal. What was like uh Oh, tuberculosis. Mm. That was that was a good creeper. Because yeah. it's like 15 years later, you start just well, coughing weird. Yeah, like super long incubation period. And the thing about TB now is there's a lot of it that's drug resistant. Um, and so, you know, you've got to be on all these special drugs for a really long time. And sometimes you've got resistant strains of the bacteria that doesn't respond. And so it can be really tough to treat. Hmm. Okay, what's fascinating about COVID from your perspective? I mean, that's that's a that's a lot of fascinating things. Well, so but. like a year, well, I guess a year and three months ago when this first started happening, I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. This is the yeah. coolest thing. Like, this is what I study. This is this is what I teach. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote an op-ed about it. I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is not the first yeah. time this has happened. Um, and then I think that it sinks in like, oh, this really sucks. Yeah. And so like not the virus itself, but like just thinking about all of the implications on society and people's lives and, um, you know, how the the mental health three months were like the most interesting time ever. It's like you get to turn you you'd be on Twitter and there'd be a picture of someone that put like a milk jug on their head in the grocery store instead of a mask like wow i can't believe i get to see this this is incredible scary and everything but like what a what a spectacle yeah um it is interesting and i think kind of what is more interesting than the virus virus itself i think is people's reaction to mm -hmm. having to deal with stuff like this like i know that my my parents i had lunch with them this weekend and my parents are 80 years old and they're just like, I don't think the CDC knows what they're talking about. They just keep changing their mind. And I'm mm. like, no, it's the the virus keeps changing. Like it's evolving yeah. in front of our eyes. And I, th- I don't think that most people have that much of an appreciation for the natural world and how, I mean, sure, we see like animal species, but they don't evolve at this rate that we can recognize. And so we're seeing this constant evolution of the virus. Oh, it's got a new host and it does this. And so I think just kind of the implications on people's knowledge of, how science actually works. Like we don't have the answers to everything immediately. So I have, this is a section of a show I sometimes do where I make myself vulnerable, where I try to explain a concept in a way that I think about it, knowing damn well that it's probably I'm missing something. I have a blind spot. I'm articulating it incorrectly. And then you get to correct me in front of everyone. <laughs> Let's hope Each I week, can. <laughs> the listener gets to hear how wrong I am about life generally. And it's, it's really fun. We like it. Um, so when I think about kind of the evolution of host parasite or host disease interaction and this 
sort of arms race that happens. And, you know, obviously, I I think I oversimplify things a, a little bit. But as you were saying, kind of the the virulence is sort of what makes it tricky potentially i've i've heard people make a different argument too that maybe we're taking it for granted that a virus won't just be super virulent sometimes and just have a delayed onset and that could happen as well um i just had a guest on talking about that recently which but i i tend to i tend to agree that the the less virulent ones through history have been super successful um and i i tend to think that if so like like with AIDS, for example, AIDS seemed more, there's lots of treatment and, and the, the science that's advanced since the beginning of AIDS has been incredible, but also as people started becoming aware of the cause and started becoming aware of like not sharing needles as much or, uh, different kinds of uh, sexual activity or whatever else that might cause uh, it, and blood transfusions and being more aware, I it, doesn't that make the kind of less virulent strains almost get favored? The ones that have more of a delayed onset and whatnot. And I guess the point is, is if if people were doing lots more to distance and mask or whatever with COVID, wouldn't wouldn't COVID kind of have to to be successful, have to have ones that are maybe less virulent, but last longer or something like that. Whereas if all of the population, if we just decided, say in May that we're like, Hey, we're all going to pretend like COVID is completely over because a few of us have been vaccinated and, and now it can just spread as kind of as much as it wants to. Isn't there, isn't it possible that more contagious and more virulent strains will be selected for just because they can. And if they can, they'll, they'll proliferate. Does any of that make any sense? Is that in line with reality? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so yes. And so kind of in the short term. um, So, I mean, basically what we're seeing now is we're seeing this Delta variant that is um, probably more virulent, that it causes worse clinical disease in people, Um, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely more infectious. And so, that's when we start talking about that R not number. So like if I'm infected, how many people am I likely to infect? And so there, you know, the estimates I've seen is that it's probably about two to three times as infectious as the original strain. So if original was like two, this is like four yeah, to four six. Yeah, four to six-ish is kind of what I've heard. And so certainly like when you've got all these large pockets of um, susceptible people, then you do see this disease emerges because you've just got, you know, mixing and evolution occurring. Um, and so a particular strain comes out and it realizes, oh, I've got a slight advantage. And that's basically what happened when this this Delta variant came out of India. So they had like a three to four percent vaccination rate across the country. And they've got what, what like one two one point two billion people. And so that's just a huge uh, population of susceptible people for it to brew in. And end up with this new, uh, you know, super virulent, not super virulent, sorry, that's not not a, really the right, virulent kind of implies that it's more deadly, um, but more infectious. And so that it's it's going to spread faster. And But, you know, long term, and so that's certainly going to be helpful now, but eventually, like most things that end up hanging around for a long time are sort of like our seasonal flus and our seasonal colds mm-hmm. that they kind of are like, they're not that big of a deal, they annoy us. 
Um, but you kind of almost end up with a commensal relationship with them. And mm-hmm. so it's not enough to kill you because like if the host kills me, it's unlikely it's going to be able to keep spreading. If the virus kills the host, it's right. unlikely. So it's if I get, if I get rabies, um, I'm unlikely to bite someone else. I mean, it could happen, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. yeah so, so you don't, you're not going to see rabies spreading like you would a respiratory pathogen because you've got to have that yeah. direct, usually bite associated with it. Um, and so yeah. having that lower, you know, case fatality rate and a high infectious rate is, you know, kind of the perfect storm for that's made COVID so successful. But, you know, I think long-term most pathogens tend to lose their really nasty bite um, so that they can actually have a commensal um, relationship with their host. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. well, and so that's, yeah. you know, that's the thought now is that more than likely, like we may have a few more iterations of, of variants of COVID, but, you know, eventually it's probably going to end up becoming an endemic coronavirus that we deal with every year that changes mm-hmm. slightly, almost like the flu. Doesn't isn't the mRNA kind of a game changer that you can just pop in a new code and it put is out amazing. A so I am I'm not a virologist. I don't make vaccines, so I don't want to talk out of turn. Yeah. But I think it's amazing. I've had people on. Yeah, it seems like a game changer in, in terms of like maybe it isn't the case that we have to just live with things in the way that we exactly. used to think and, yeah. and ju- just the speed at which you can and it's that you don't you don't need to like redo the studies and everything you're just popping in the new uh the new strain and boom you have just just in the same way that they aren't retesting the flu vaccine every year or right. i mean in terms of like approval process or whatever right. it's like you have the process approved and so once you have that, it takes like three days to run it through a computer to pop Make out. Sure the, here's the formula. OK, there we go. Yeah. Um, well, the, the other thing in terms of from an epidemiology point of view is is when we were talking about the what is it? The the R not or is R that not, the, yep. uh-huh. the the amount that it spreads when we talk about two now up to four to six. Well, what what's measles like 15 or something like that 12. or 12? Yeah. So so because of because of the how contagious something is that factors into the kind of mathematical model of how many people would need to be vaccinated for if a vaccine is uh, is, you know, this percent effective. Here's how many people would need it to uh, kind of. Uh, eliminate measles or whatever. And, and measles, I think, is something like when it starts dropping below 92% or something like that it's in, the in 90s. areas, yeah. it starts it starts popping up again just because 12, uh, spreading to 12 people potentially. for mm-hmm. And that means spreading to 12 people under a condition of no vaccines, right? Like sure, if so vaccines were So that's basically thing. if you've got a population of, you know, 100 people, and yeah. if at least a good chunk of them are susceptible, so they haven't been vaccinated, yeah, yeah, um, then they're susceptible to me being around them with my fluids and spreading it yeah, to yeah, you know, yeah. and, and it's an average of twelve people. So some people may have higher or lower viral loads, but um, but yeah, so basically the higher the infectivity, and so that's one of the issues with this Delta variant is so. You know, when the vaccines first came out, they're saying, OK, like probably about 70 percent. Let's do it. Yeah. Right. And now it's like, oh, maybe it's actually more like 80 percent. And we're yeah. not. So are we going to ever get there? And now that the vaccine yeah. doesn't necessarily protect you from infection, 
Um, I mean, for some people it does, but there's certainly breakthrough infections that at least it protects you from severe illness or death. But, you know, can you ever truly reach herd immunity? And that's a term that comes from vet medicine because we run the herd of cattle through the chute and vaccinate every last one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, how how does that, how does that uh, work? Exceptionally effective, right? Oh yeah. Or. Well, and so it's interesting because so there's a number of coronaviruses in veterinary medicine that affect dogs or chickens or cattle um, that honestly, over the years, we've had pretty crappy vaccines for. And so mm-hmm. when this coronavirus first emerged, some researchers in the veterinary world were like, Ugh, you know, the vaccines that we've got for the coronaviruses in animals don't like they're OK, but they don't work great. And so this mRNA is such a game changer because it's it's a completely different platform than anything that's been done for vet medicine. And, you know, think about for veterinary patients, like there's not billions and billions of dollars being poured into um, curing infectious bronchitis of poultry. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even though it's a huge economic disruptor globally, it's not it doesn't affect people. And so I think it's right. a matter of, you know, maybe I, I think it'd be kind of cool if this technology actually gets converted into dealing with some of the veterinary diseases that are globally a problem. Well, pro- probably will, because it will probably be pretty cost effective. Right. Now pr- that the technology has been right? proven. Yeah. yeah. And and that's and it, I mean, that's. Cause, cause there's such a, there's such an issue with antibiotics and, and putting so much antibiotics in ourselves and hospital in, in uh, being overprescribed, not being, not using them correctly, using, using them in, um, so many cattle and everything else. And that's, yep. and that's such a different, and, and that's, that's a threat in and of itself. And that's another thing that kind of, uh, that vaccines sort of take care of a vaccines just kind of giving a cheat sheet to here's the threats that are out there rather than a ongoing treatment yeah, yeah potentially actually- i mean there there are some I'm trying to think if there aren't humans there are some bacterial like vaccines for bacterial infections in vet medicine they're okay they generally are a little bit more difficult to develop and be as effective as mm. um, vaccines for viruses but yeah you're exactly right so like the indiscriminate use of antibiotics, be it in humans or in animals, uh, those can end up in the environment. They can end up in our food system. Um, and, you know, can, is there ways that we can prevent the use of those antibiotics if they're not really necessary through the use of vaccines or probiotics or whatever it happens to be to prevent mm-hmm. those infections from actually ever happening? Hmm. Um, so you you studied uh, chickens a bunch, right? Good segue. Is it, is it <laughs> well? It's not a great segue. Well, no, I was just talking about chickens but, and and their but, coronaviruses. Well, yeah, I, I was I was thinking because I might be. They sent me a big list of names, and there's two people, you and someone else, yes. that both research different aspects of chickens, and I was mm-hmm. like. Give me both the chicken people on the same. I think I tried to line it up so it was going to be a whole chicken episode. But so so I bring that up because I'm forgetting what chicken research you do. Are you are you the rural chicken 
Um, so I usually do backyard poultry research. Yes, yes. Okay, because that's all the rage these days. I mean, I'm pretty in fashion. I don't know if you uh, noticed, but... Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say that same thing, actually. I was going to bring it up myself. Uh, no, I just had a... I was in... <laughs> I was in... Uh, uh, last week, I was visiting a high school buddy in Minneapolis, and, um, and him and his... Uh, and his wife were having a debate about, and I was, um, uh, I didn't, uh, you know, they didn't ask me if I wanted to mediate it, but it you was did? a situation that happened <laughs> and I was there. And so, uh, and, but they were having a debate. So uh, the wife, she wanted either backyard chickens or a goat and i get the chickens and then that's what i said i said chickens all day and he wants neither but is maybe considering compromising and i said yeah get get the chickens i mean eggs are awesome goat's not going to do a lot for you you have you have such a small property that it's bordering on unethical to have a goat uh in this yard and it's like, do you hate mowing that much th- that you're okay with like picking up poop and stuff instead? And and so it was, you know, I went chickens, of course. And then they're like, well, how many chickens? And then so that was a whole debate about how many eggs they're going. I think they're putting out. I think uh, I think they're fertile for what are chickens fertile for like six to eight weeks or something like that at a oh, time. No, way longer or, than that. No, my lay. Oh yeah, mine will lay. So I have, I'll sound like crazy if I list all of my animals, but I think I've got maybe, well, <laughs> well now I'm going to make you. Well, so this is a, this is a hazard. Like if, if you ever know a veterinarian that doesn't have too many animals, then there's something unusual yeah, about that, animal, that, that veterinarian. Cause you got to take some in and stuff, right? There's well, a whole. Yeah. And so like I can give opinions on both chickens and goats because I have them both. Okay. Um, and so goats, I have four of them. My first goat actually got kicked out of our local zoo for headbutting a woman. Uh-huh. Um, so she, her name is Babs, and she's just kind of the, the woman or the goat? The goat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the goat, yeah. So she, and so then we got two little ones to be her buddy. And then one of my friends asked me to hang on to their goat temporarily while they fix their Oh, their that fence. old trick. And then they're like, you know what? Keep the goat. Yeah, so I've had the goat for like four years now. And so oh, while goats... Never like, fall every, for the old goat sitting Yeah, trick. like it'll just be a few months. Yeah, yeah. Um, But so like everyone sees the baby goats online and they're like, oh, they're so cute. They're so wonderful. Goats are kind of jerks. Like mm-hmm. they headbutt you yeah. and they're pushy and, and they don't actually graze. They're mostly browsers. And so they're crap for mowing your lawn. Like if you want yeah. to clear out poison ivy and brush, they're good, but but that's the bill of goods that you're sold with goats. Oh yeah, they're like they're gonna mow your lawn for you. They do that's not. what people no. Okay. They do not. But that, yeah, and then I've got chickens, and so a, a number of my chickens are actually from uh, research studies that I've done that I've that I've adopted, and it's yeah. sort of a um, a ploy to trick my significant other into mm-hmm. letting me have more chickens. Yeah, yeah. So I just tell we him, I'm edit, like, well, we I can edit this out home. if you want. I, we can, <laughs> he knows. <laughs> so it's still on. Oh, he knows. You're forthright about it. That's yeah, a, I was like, well, I a, couldn't find anyone to adopt him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah. Chickens are great, though. No, chickens are great. So they're they're pretty funny. They're like, they're entertaining. They yeah. give you eggs uh, to eat. 
what are we talking eggs wise though? Like what what's the what's the period of time like within a given year that a chicken can a given chicken can lay? So my eggs? chickens usually kind of start to tail off in like November, December. Okay. And then start laying again in probably like February. So there's like about a three month period that I don't get a whole lot of eggs. So that's all it's it's the same. It's the same time. I didn't know if it was like intermittent or if they all. No, were. like sometimes sometimes they will. So like last week it was super hot here. And I think my chickens were just like sitting there panting. They weren't eating a whole lot. And I didn't get very many eggs because I think they just were struggling because it was so warm. Yeah. Um, but typically when the days are short, you don't get a whole lot of eggs. Um, and so okay. if you look at commercial poultry um, protection or for eggs, um, they actually mess with the light cycles to keep them on super long days to keep them laying. Um, yeah. I don't do that with my chickens. I let them take a break in the winter and just give them a guilt <laughs> trip. Well, I'm like, now I've got to buy eggs to make Christmas cookies. Thanks. Yeah. Because I didn't make yeah. any. But um, but yeah, so typically they just kind of have an annual cycle that when the days are really short in the winter, I'll get an egg here or there, but they, they don't lay a whole lot of eggs. But That's... they can they can lay a lot. Like in the high season, once they start first of the spring, I think there's one day I got, oh, no, like, so from one, so one chicken can't, they can only lay one egg per day. Oh, so the amount of time it takes from, and this is probably more detail from the, from the follicle to leave the ovary to go all Uh the way through the shell gland, get the, um, albumin put on and then put the shell on takes like 24 hours. And so it's basically a day for egg to go from this to out. So um, shorter days, sometimes it'll take like two days or something for or, that or process. they just won't even they they'll just stop cycling in, in those short just not days. Not in the mood today. Not in the mood, sorry, not making eggs. Day, not enough light. Yeah, so they're, they're huh. yeah, they're basically okay. very much light driven. But yeah, so chickens are, are pretty fun. I think I've how many do I have? Maybe like sixteen or seventeen chickens. They're pretty So average though. through a year, what do you, what would you say a chicken on on the season that they're laying eggs for a week? You pretty consistently, right? Oh yeah, I'd say like, like four or five a week. I like four or five a week when they're actually laying. Yeah, that's why. So I was telling my friend, he's like, he's like, how many eggs do we need? I'm like, well, it's you, your wife. You have a twelve year old. That's that's. He was trying to tell me he needed under a dozen a week. I'm like a dozen spare minimum for three people in a week. I feel like eggs wise. What are you going through eggs wise around your? <laughs> uh, it depends on the time of year. Like when I get lots of eggs, I actually make quiche and I freeze them. Oh, for the, perfect. For the, yeah, and so like I've got a freezer with a bunch of quiche in them. But I mean, we'll go through maybe about a dozen a week. Well, I don't, I don't my, eat eggs all the time. My argument was that you're also you're popular with the neighbors then too, oh, yeah. right? You have sure. extra eggs. That's like you're well liked in the neighborhood if you're gifting fresh eggs to people. And so, yeah. So that was that was. I'm I'm glad to hear science prove me right that chickens, <laughs> backyard chickens over goats. Yeah, um, my goats. Uh, well, they are entertaining. Sometimes I just want to kick them because they'll really? come up and just. Really? What what does what does something that annoys you they'll so they just they're really pushy sometimes like they'll just come up and start like just putting their shoulders into me and trying to hook me with their horns just to be bossy yeah do you just gotta show them who's boss yeah kind of like there's been times where i'll just kind of push them away or there's years ago one of them hooked me on my arm and i came in and i was talking like hook me with their um horn. with their talons or whatever well, no, or, no like with, oh, their, with, with their, their horns like they managed to get my arm and just like ran there and so i had this huge bruise on my arm and i come really? into work and i was talking with my hands and you could see the person's eyes be like oh my goodness she's getting abused 
Yeah, I am by a chicken. I'm like, no, it, well, by a goat. <laughs> no, this is the goat oh, that did it. Go- oh, yeah. the goat did it. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, no, no, the chickens confused. are <laughs> they're they're good. Yeah. So everyone's oh, goats. Uh, yeah, I was totally screwed up. There. Yeah, goats are assholes. We already yeah. established that. But what about so chickens are great though. Chickens are chickens great. Chickens Hens are, just... are great. Um, roosters can be assholes as well. Um, I've yeah. got one rooster amongst mine, and he's a little bantam one, so he's like wee big. Um, and every once in a while, he'll come up to me and pretend like he's gonna like do something to me and i'm just like really buddy like you weigh a pound is he a pretty happy fellow though and with I all, mean, those he's got ladies? all those ladies yeah yeah you'd think so um so so what what is what does uh, backyard chicken research look like what 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 what, what, what is that what, what kind doing? of research are you doing <laughs> yeah so i mean we, that's awesome we i guess it was god it's probably been i don't know five or six years ago since we did the first study and so Backyard poultry have been increasing in popularity for probably the last decade um, since some of the big cities are allowing people to have, you know, a small number of hens. Usually the limit's like four to six hens per household. Uh-huh. And um, we started looking at this, like the, the number of hens that are coming into our hospital here was increasing. And when people are bringing these hens in, some of them absolutely love these chickens, just like they're a dog or a cat, which some people are like, Really? But they, they're actually, they're pretty personable. And so they wanted to they wanted to give them the best treatment they could. But a lot of the medications that are out there that we would use for chickens, so they're not necessarily labeled for use in chickens, but mm-hmm. we can use things off-label um, if you've got that client-patient relationship. But when we give them those medications, we don't know what the drug withdrawal time is for egg consumption. And so like if I were to treat um, your chicken with a particular antibiotic, if we don't have the data to know how long it actually takes to clear it out of the eggs, you might be eating eggs or giving eggs to your neighbor that have yeah. this antibiotic in it. And oops, their daughter actually has an allergy to it. And uh. oh, you send their daughter to the hospital with anaphylaxis. And so what we did is we started looking at a couple of different medications. Um, you know, really, they're honestly like n- not groundbreaking studies that are going to win me a Nobel Prize. Um, but what we were looking at is, okay, we started with uh, leghorn chickens, which are a common commercial breed, um, but mm-hmm. we had access to a farm that would basically loan them to us for the study, and then we'd give them back. And so it was a pretty easy arrangement. And we would uh, give the the hens medication for you know a single dose or multi-dosing for a certain medication and look at you know what is the proper dose to give the chicken so that it's therapeutic, but then also how long does it stay in the eggs for? And so, um, like, if you go to the grocery store, any meat that you buy should have no antibiotics in it, right? Because if if that cow ever got an antibiotic, there's a certain withdrawal time that you have to wait before it can go to slaughter. And there's just not a whole lot of data regarding eggs because the commercial poultry egg producers, um, if you get a sick chicken, they're not Mm going to treat it, right? So it usually just gets culled from the flock. And so that's what we've been trying to gather data on these last couple of years is looking at um, a few different commonly used medications, as well as looking at a couple of different breeds of chickens because they actually don't have all the same metabolism. And so we know this in dogs that, you know, some dogs metabolize things faster than others, different breeds. And so what we did is we looked at a couple of different breeds of chicken and found that some of them actually metabolize this particular medication called meloxicam. It's a a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, kind of like ibuprofen. Um, that we commonly use in vet medicine and the species or the different breeds actually metabolize them at different speeds. And so that affects how frequently you should dose them. 
Unfortunately, um, it doesn't have a big impact on how long it takes them to clear out of the eggs. It's still similar. So we've been trying to fill some of those holes so that our veterinary practitioners have a better idea of, okay, what can we use to treat with? How long does it take to clear out of the eggs so that I can actually correctly tell the owners, okay, throw the eggs out for the next 10 days, next 14 days or whatever it is. Don't I eat see. them for then. That's interesting. So that's a particular backyard chicken problem because these are pets that people want to keep healthy and stick around in, in a right. industrial Yeah, um, so in industry, they, they're situation. not going to do that. But with the right. number of people that have backyard poultry now, it's a huge deal across. And so like, a, there's a number of people that are board certified in avian medicine. But like, mm -hmm. so I'm one of them. And But when I got trained, I almost saw no poultry because we were seeing parrots and finches and, and birds like that. But it's very much shifted. Not that we're not seeing those anymore, but we're seeing a lot more poultry. Because it's there's this increasing popularity because people want to have local food, um, they want to have these you know animals that they know how they're treated, what's going into them that they're you know actually being humanely treated, and so they're it's a it, I think in Knoxville we they've they put a change the city policy maybe like six or seven years ago that you could have poultry um, hens in the city limits which historically you couldn't and a lot of bigger cities are doing that as well. Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's, I mean, who's anti chicken? That's, I mean, oh, I, there's people. I mean, there's yeah, anti, I anti anything. <laughs> people, there's always but people what, that are against things. I mean, I get a rooster waking you up or something like that. What other problems do, do rural chickens cause problems for anybody? I mean, as long as you don't have too many of them. So chickens can definitely stink. I mean, they poop a lot. Okay. So it can be kind of stinky. And if people don't clean up the coops frequently, you may end up with more flies. They don't make a whole lot of noise, certainly relative to roosters. Um, but I mean, there's always people that are against things, but it's usually yeah. kind of the the smell associated with them because they certainly chickens poop a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I what's going on with the with the you go to the store, the egg safe free range on it seems like a scam to me. <laughs> like, I mean, it be because. Because I read Free Range and I picture old McDonald's farm and it's like a chicken in a hammock or something like that, just living its best life. And someone's that's feeding it, it and then, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the reality is like it, Free Range is okay. These chickens are allowed a 15 by 15 foot space that they might not actually ever see in their lifetime because they're at the other end of some huge airplane hangar basically with with a thousand chickens between them and the outdoors so they don't even know that it's there probably both of those things are extreme but what what is what's up with free range is it anything well, so i mean the labeling on eggs is kind of a i don't know honestly how regulated it really is Right. So if we think about most eggs, if they don't say anything, they're typically raised in what are called battery cages, which are these tiny little cages, maybe like, I mean, the chicken can't really even turn around. They're they like they have almost no space. Um, then there's also cage free, free range. And so they're just kind of a variety. It's a spectrum of so even if it's free range, that doesn't usually mean they're going outside. Right. I mean, typically anything that is raised for commercial purposes, they are completely enclosed in a house. It's a matter of, okay, do they have a battery cage that they have no space? Do they have, there's some that have smaller cages 
that are, I'm trying to think what those are even labeled, that they're not, I mean, they're still cages, but they may be free range, but they're not. And so, and that's the thing is like a lot of the labeling is, it's, I don't know exactly even how regulated it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if you can get free range and it's the same price, I mean, it's probably better than the battery cages, but is it worth twice the price? I don't know. That's, I mean, and that's one of the reasons that people are, are getting backyard poultry. Um, the other mm-hmm. label that honestly drives me insane is when it says vegetarian fed hens. So I, I don't know if you know anything about chickens, but they love bugs. Oh, like, okay. Yeah. They love bugs. Like they don't want to be vegetarians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, and there's been yeah, quite people, a bit of people make their dogs vegan and stuff. That, that's yeah. fun. Like they're not, no, <laughs> that's not evolutionarily a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's, there's been actually a lot of back and forth over the years between the government and the poultry industry, like the commercial poultry industry, trying to come up with standards because, you know, some states have requirements that they can't be in battery cages. Other ones allow it. And so it makes it difficult to sell across state lines because you've got to meet certain standards for one state, not another. And so there's kind of this back and forth about trying to come up with language that is consistent nationally for those commercial flocks. Yeah. I mean, the the world's the world's changing. There literally was when I was a kid, I grew up around literally like old McDonald ish type <laughs> farms where you'd go and they'd have a few pigs and a chicken mm-hmm. coop and some cows and stuff. And that it doesn't exist anymore. It's, At least uh, it, not very often. Yeah, I actually no. I just took a trip out west, a road trip out west and uh, to get a get out of town for a little bit and went past so many feedlots like yeah. large cattle feedlots. And it's just, you know, is, is that the best thing that we can do? Can we do better? Yeah. What? So speaking of de- disease spread, how in the heck do you manage disease spread? If you have that many chickens in a, I mean, how do you even, how, how do you, even, I mean, how many chickens are they sticking in some, in like one space? How, how are you even knowing if something gets, if like one of those chickens gets sick, how? Well, usually like if a, one gets sick, a lot gets sick. And so well, that's what I'd think. Yeah. And so, I mean, most of the large commercial places, um, they have really pretty incredible biosecurity. And I'll just stick with chickens with this, although swine are pretty similar. So I went to vet school at North Carolina State, which has um, one of the largest swine and poultry production numbers. I think it's maybe like number two for swine and two or three for poultry production. And so we actually had quite a bit of poultry and swine in our uh, curriculum. And we actually had houses that were essentially the same as a commercial house would be. And and the biosecurity is really strict. Um, They do a lot of preventive medicine. So making sure vaccines are on board to prevent diseases. But yeah, if you do get a disease and, you know, those houses of chickens will have thousands of chickens in them. And so if you Mm -hmm. get a nasty disease in there, it's going to run through it pretty quickly. And they end up calling houses um, like if you get an avian influenza, they, they end up calling the entire house. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So what about, so how, how are rural chickens getting diseases? Like they're, I mean, they're like a little, what, what'd you say? You have like five chickens or something like that? Me? You have four, I have yeah. like 16. I have four, have six, four goats, but I've got like 16 four, or 18. Oh, 16, 16 ch- the smile on your face when you said that too, it was like, <laughs> it was, it, it was, it, it was, there was like, 
there was shame and pride in oh, I in mean, they the are delivery pretty cute. I do like that. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But well, so so what kind of your chickens in particular? What kind of what kind of things are you worried about? Um. So I mean, they certainly could get diseases from wild birds. Um. Honestly, in in my what do you flock, mean? Like so something like, drops a like if flies so wild birds are interacting. Like mine are not enclosed; they're running around outside. Oh. And, and so they could potentially come into contact with something a wild bird was carrying. So whether that's a virus or a bacteria, um, honestly, most of the things that I've had issues with with mine have been old age. And so mm-hmm. I've had a, fu- a couple that have just like they essentially go into organ failure because they're really old. Um, yeah. Other things that a lot of hens will have problems with it, like just in a backyard poultry uh, collection is that um, because they're making so many eggs, they can sometimes end up with reproductive disease. And so um, they'll end up with sometimes the, if the the egg doesn't leave the ovary correctly, it ends up in the uh, basically the salomic or abdominal cavity. And they can end mm. up with a lot of, um, I guess, adhesions is the word, but it's basically like it gets all gummed up in there with just like cheesy looking stuff and their intestines don't work anymore. And they their body basically shuts down from this huge inflammatory response. And so wow. a lot of the stuff that I see in mine are not necessarily infectious diseases. The other problem I have is if occasionally they get out of where they're supposed to be and one of my dogs finds them and decides, oh, it's a squeaky toy. And, yeah. and then yeah, it doesn't always happens. go so well. And I've had to repair one or two and euthanize one or two because my dumb dogs decide to play right. with them. Right, right. Um, so what what a what a what's the average person have to look out for? Similar would, or yeah, the- I would say so so certainly um at least in the most parts of our country, I'd say predation is a huge problem. So if you don't have a secure um, setting for your poultry, critters are out there just waiting to eat them. So whether it's coyotes or raccoons, um, they will get in and do their best to try and make a mess of of your collection. Um, But otherwise, so there was an avian influenza outbreak in uh, backyard poultry in kind of, I guess, south middle Tennessee a couple years ago. Um, and they're guessing it probably got in from some wild birds and they had to go in and cull the entire flock. I don't remember. It wasn't a huge flock, but it was bigger than I've got. Um, but mm-hmm. so certainly, you know, avian influenza, Newcastle disease, those are b- diseases that wild birds can carry and potentially spread to your backyard chickens. Um, probably, honestly, the biggest thing What's to be worried Newcastle about. Newcastle disease? I've never heard of that. Um, so Newcastle disease is... Um, it's not something that's generally a problem for people, but it's a um, it's a virus that can cause really similar things that avian influenza does. Um, there is a pretty decent sized outbreak in California that's been kind of like they've been trying whack-a-mole to get w- rid of it over the last number of years because it'll pop up here and they kind of s- sniff it out. And it comes up here. Um, there was a really big outbreak of Newcastle in I think it was 2003 in California and Arizona. It was associated with um, fighting cocks that were illegal, but they were being transferred around and then it got into the commercial chickens. But it can um, it can lead to a really high mortality rate in chicken flocks, particularly in those um, not, not only backyard, but also if it gets into commercial, it can just go through a flock and it's probably got close to 100 percent mortality. Man, cockfighting always seems like such a great idea, and then <laughs> and then you you forget about those little details. You're like, oh wait, these people actually, uh, oh, they're not really following the rules in terms of moving their birds around, and since it's illegal. But. Um, and I and I I cut you off to ask you about Newcastle, but you're going to say oh. one of the worst things. No, so one of the worst things that 
we honestly need to worry about with backyard poultry that I think a lot of folks don't think about because a lot of folks that end up with backyard poultry have never really had livestock is salmonella. And mm. so with the increase in all these backyard poultry flocks, they're seeing a lot more cases of salmonellosis associated with them. So people hug in and they're kissing their chicken and they're not doing a good. Oh, yeah. Come on. Oh. There's, there's pictures. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd probably I don't think I'd kiss a chicken. But I wouldn't either. I I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> mind a good chicken cuddle. And like, well, and, and I mean, I'll hold mine, but I'm not I'm not kissing them. But also just like. Um, with making sure that you're doing good sanitation with the eggs, because a lot of a lot of chickens just carry salmonella. It's part of their mm. normal flora, not a big deal. But if we end up accidentally eating it, it's not always the best thing. Right. And so wow. a lot of folks that aren't all that familiar that. with good biosecurity um, sometimes end up with these salmonella outbreaks. And sometimes it's from when they first get the little chicks that are just so super cute. And the chicks are basically just pooping out salmonella constantly. Um, and so there's been quite a few outbreaks over the last, I don't know, probably 10 years. And I think it even got worse during the pandemic because so many people were stuck at home. They're like, oh, let's get some poultry. And so they got all these little baby poultry and they ended up having salmonella issues. What, and what happens when you get salmonella? You, you always, it, I guess I've just always uh, been reminded of salmonella my whole life. just don't get it and i'm like well, i better yeah, not be sit, get you'll be sitting on the toilet salmonella and yeah okay. yeah so it's usually well, just bad gi you'll rabies. have really bad diarrhea um yeah. most people as long as you're otherwise healthy can recover without antibiotics but it sometimes can lead to to worse you know symptoms in people that are immunosupp don't have a good immune system or maybe sometimes kids that'll mm -hmm. you know end up like kissing the baby chicken and end up with all this salmonella yeah uh, i'll take a chance on diarrhea honestly if like, it, eh, if i get to like, hang out with <laughs> if i i mean i mean if it's guaranteed diarrhea maybe not but i don't know i just if i have chickens i feel like i want to play with them a little bit well sure i think it's just that folks are you just got to be careful well you just gotta you need to wash your hands so like when you go collect right. the eggs mm. wash your hands afterward and like don't wear your poopy flock boots into the house and get poop yeah. all over your you know things like that yeah i'll take the boots off washing the hands i gotta be honest with myself about realistically how much i'm going to do that i don't know maybe i don't know I, I'll, it's a lot to think about before i get chickens <laughs> but i'm i'm for it what about what about chickens what do they what what uh if you want to give a chicken its best life you have a pet chicken. You just want it to be happy and playing and loving its life. What What are some of the things you can do? Let it be outside. Yeah, that's it. There's I mean, no chicken, toys for pet chickens or anything like that. I mean, as long as they're out on grass and dirt, they get out there and they're scratching. They're looking for bugs. They're running around eating grass. Like they've got a pretty good life unless they get outside the fence and then my dog finds them. Okay. But I yeah, see. and I guess some places they'll have raptors that'll come in. So like uh hawks oh, wow. or stuff will sometimes come in and, and take them. Um, so that's not ideal, but you know, as long as you're, they're outside and they've got good nutrition and they've got sunlight, you know, I'm sure that sometimes the weather is not ideal. I think it was funny last year. We got a bunch of snow on Christmas Eve and we got like six inches was, which is a lot for us. And my chickens would not come out of the coop all day. They're just mm. like, Nope, <laughs> not wow. going out there. <laughs> Do you, um, oh shoot. What was I going to, 
I felt like I had such a good backyard chicken question for you. Um, oh, ah, it's not that good. <laughs> not that good at all, but I'm still curious. What do we, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a guess at it. Lifespan of a chicken, five years. They can live longer. They're probably. They're, As close? Yeah. They can, so I'm trying to think the longest one I've got living now is. She's probably about seven or eight years old. Yeah. Um, most of mine are like three and four age range. Um, I think I've, one of my coworkers, she's got some that are like 10 and 12. Those are definitely yeah. like the end of the spectrum. But, you know, probably five years is a reasonable guess for how long before they sometimes end up with issues. But their productive life in terms of laying eggs is probably like, I don't know, three to four years. And then they'll start to decline with production. Like my mm -hmm. big, my big, I call her big mama because she's my biggest girl. She's a buff Orpington. She's like this really pretty big chicken. She doesn't lay very many eggs anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but, but she's funny, so it's fine. <laughs> full grown in like what six months nine months um they'll start laying usually in like i, I don't know maybe like eight or nine months usually the one okay. that i've had sometimes a little bit earlier a little bit later but because if you're making poultry you just six months in they're fully grown just boom oh it's done, less than right? that you, you don't just keep feeding a thing for no reason no if you're if you're yeah. making it for meat so like the yeah. the ones that the broilers that they actually have in commercial those are usually done going like they probably kill them at, I don't know, like two months, maybe they grow super fast. Aren't chickens like the most populous mammal on Earth? They're not mammals. They're animals. Anim animals. <laughs> yes. On Earth. Yeah. On Earth. But yeah, I don't know yeah, what the numbers are, but I've heard that like there's like billions and billions and billions of chickens. Yeah. Yeah. Chickens are winning in a way. I mean, it's a it's it's hard to. Are they? I mean, would you I mean, want to be one? Numbers wise, no. <laughs> I mean, that's, you get you get you just become a fully formed adult and you lose your head immediately just yeah. for growing correctly. Yeah. And then you're cooped up in places a lot of times. If you're lucky, you're a backyard chicken. That's the best chicken you can be. I feel like. Well, so it's free range. I, or I mean, there 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 are wild. There's some wild chicken. That's not. Unless you're in like Key West or something like that, that doesn't really happen many places, right? Some well, I mean, countries, there's very, maybe. I think there's feral ones in Hawaii too. I've okay. seen when I was there years ago. I saw a bunch of chickens running around. I was like, hmm, all right, feral chickens. <laughs> yeah, huh. feral chickens. But yeah. Okay, and I uh, I want to ask you about your other. Well, first of all, could you explain? Um, to the audience what the One Health initiative is, because they'll be happy um, to get a plug. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it maybe started a year and a half, two years ago, and it it's, was years in the making. And so the One Health term got coined, I don't know, maybe like 15, 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. really the idea is that we need to start working across disciplines to solve these big problems that we're facing as a planet. Um, and so, you know, historically, you think about, you know, physicians, they work with physicians, veterinarians work with veterinarians, um, those ecosystem scientists or wildlife biologists, they tend to hang out together. Um, and so really trying to bridge the d different disciplines to look at, okay, what can we do to prevent further, um, you know, spillover of coronaviruses from bats into an intermediate mammal into humans? Um, 
how do we get social scientists involved with um, community interventions to, you know, reduce reliance on bushmeat? Um, and so, you know, really trying to think of those, the bigger picture and what disciplines can play a role um, in solving those problems and whether that's prevention of diseases um, in our livestock or in spillover for, to people or, you know, food security for our, our growing human population across the planet, uh, making sure that we're preserving our wildlife because there's certainly a lot of value in ecosystems. Um, but, but, you know, I think really the take home is, is that we need to break down the silos of, of professionals and work across those, those professions to try and come up with solutions that work. Mm. Amazing. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm super, I mean, it's, it's something that I, I just think is, you know, I've been doing this podcast for over seven years now. I think you're my 350th guest or whatever. And I've talked with so many people in so many different fields and it's just, you just make a lot of connections mm -hmm. over time. And, and yeah, they, uh, like you said, those silos that doesn't, um, that doesn't help anybody. And, and even in terms of, I, I had, uh, you probably know Barbara Natterson. No, mm -mm. uh, she wrote a book called Wildhood and Zubiquity. Is oh, another Zubiquity. Book. I, I know. Did she write yeah. that? Yeah, I think oh, okay. so. Maybe I just Maybe I'm wrong. don't remember. Eh, regardless. Yeah, I know um, Zubiquity is, though. Um, but yeah, she was, uh, or is a heart surgeon and, oh UCLA. yeah. Okay. I and just then, didn't know her name because, and then, yeah, she's on the show, but, uh, but, but that was, that was a good example of, and uh, cause she got called over to the zoo to look at some primates hearts. And then it, it, she started learning all of these things that applied to humans mm -hmm. as well. And it's just a, a very good, good example of why we need to know things about chickens and things like that, <laughs> that actually it's, it, it, it is, it's, it's all, I'm sure chickens from a chicken's point of view also are pretty chicken centric and think chickens are the best thing on earth and only care about chickens and everything else. It's, it's probably the, the natural way in which any species perceives things, but <laughs> For humans to have to understand, to be able to see all of these other implications that are kind of hidden beneath the surface and see the many connections that do impact our lives is is something really cool to see that is becoming more and more a prominent way of looking at things. And uh, so, yeah, the One Health Initiative is awesome. But you do um, you do some outreach with a group called uh, with an organization called Habit. Yeah. Correct? So. So one of the things that's kind of fun about being a uh, public health veterinarian is that you can do put your fingers into a whole lot of things. So obviously I, I've talked about infectious diseases and epidemiology and chickens and uh, something else that we work with is it's called the human animal bond in Tennessee. And this is um, it's an animal assisted intervention group and it's based here at the College of Veterinary Medicine and it's been around for I think 35 years now. So I was not the one that started it. I took it over a number of years ago, and um, basically we've got a, a huge group of wonderful volunteers, and mostly they're dogs, and they will go out and uh, do visits at nursing homes and hospitals and outpatient centers and dialysis centers, and uh, they'll also go to schools, and kids will practice reading to the to the kids, and, um, and so it's just kind of a great group that um, we've got, I think, about 650 volunteers that go to facilities all over East Tennessee. And we've got some in middle Tennessee as well. And it's, 
it's just kind of a, a feel good thing that, you know, everybody loves to, to pet a dog and it's really yeah, fun yeah. to read, read to a dog. And, um, so it's just kind of a, a, a good, you know, a good way to bridge that, the, the fuzziness of an animal and, and the good feelings you get from petting those animals. Sometimes, particularly if you're in a tough situation. So like we've got dogs that go to the oncology ward across the river at the UT medical center. So people that are getting chemotherapy can, can pet a dog and kind of forget why they're there for a couple of minutes. And so it's just kind of a great outreach program that our college supports. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Where, uh, is it? So, so you get volunteers that own dogs already. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Like... So we've got three staff, actually two and a quarter staff members um, that they basically do all the logistics of matching people to a facility that fits their needs, be it, you know, time of day, location type of facility. But yeah, so these are basically people that just, it's their pet dogs. Um, they're not necessarily trained to do this. They're just generally good dogs. We don't have any sort of requirement of breed. Um, they do have to pass a behavior test and they've also got to get annual physicals from a veterinarian to make sure they're getting proper preventive medicine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's I just had my first, um, dog episode like a few weeks ago. I'm like, what? I, I, I don't know. Uh, like, I feel like I dropped the ball on dogs a little <laughs> bit because it's, it's, uh, I tend to just stay away from things that just people generally are really interested. <laughs> I try to stay away from popular things. Um, in particular, I tend to like exploring things that you don't hear about, um, as often, but, I bring it up because dog dogs also seem like a such a great way to get, you know, going to schools and things like that. It seems like such a great way to get people interested in uh, education. I feel like I would have paid a lot more attention as a kid if I would have gotten to interact with animals and stuff on a more regular basis. Have you ever have you ever considered bringing some chickens around, showing them what's <laughs> up with chickens? Well, so we're probably not going to do that because they poop too much. And they have yeah. salmonella, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have had a few folks um, that they'll request, Hey, can I have my pet serval be part of a uh, habit? And I don't know if you know what a serval. What's a serval? So it's this African Savannah cat that they are. I mean, they stand, their back is maybe, I don't know, three feet tall. Um, they're okay. an exotic pet. And we said, no, like, no, we're yeah. not going to go there because and occasionally we'll have someone, oh, well, you know, I've got a really great parrot. And it's like, no, we're not we're not. And so we're, we're pretty selective about who will what type of species will allow. And so we basically had dogs for the most part. That's the vast majority. I've had a handful of cats, but you think about cats, it's got to be a pretty special cat to put up with people petting it. And it's going in the car and things like that. And we have people had a few rabbits. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, so I'm allergic to cats, too. So. Like, I would be like, ah, yeah. no, thanks. I don't want to pet the cat. <laughs> like, I'll start sneezing. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's and mostly some dogs. rabbits. Yeah, we've some had a few rabbits. rabbits. Mm -hmm. They bite ever? No. No. And so we usually, so they've got to go through a behavioral evaluation that yeah. will kind of almost like poke them and annoy them, annoy them just a little bit. I see. To make sure that they're just like, whatever. It's cool. Like, it, just in case, you know, if a kid pulls an ear or like pinches a toe that the dog's not going to bite them or stuff like that. My first pet was a rabbit and it didn't didn't go like well its situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was a biter. But um yeah, I so all right. Um let me see. What else did I want 
to cover. So uh, what do you, uh, what do you think in terms of, so again, I want to make this case that, cause you start said early on, people weren't as interested in epidemiology and, um, and people didn't, didn't you say something like people tend to be more interested in like surgery and stuff like that? Cause to me, that's, Come on. No, surgery is like playing a video game or something. There's like an <laughs> artistry to it, sure, but it, it hardly feels like thought work. I mean, sure, it, it, there's like things to know and everything else, but it's like it's a skill. You're you're cutting into things. You're just a... I, like, I'm going to make sure that... Once no this, disrespect to surgeons. I, I'm going to make sure I play but, this for the surgeons once it's done. <laughs> but I, I honestly, I feel like surgeons are overrated. It, it, I I don't know. I mean, listen, I had a, I, I've had two foot surgeries. I, I've had my tonsils uh, taken out. I'm grateful to the surgeries, for the surgeries that I've had that improved my life. But at the end of the day, it's like they, they get all the status in today's culture. Everyone's like, wow, that person's a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I don't I don't think that they're making as many connections and things as something like a Well, so vet medicine is similar. So like basically in veterinary medicine, similar to human medicine, it's the it's the surgeons that are like, yes, they're super. Comp- so like you can go and do a residency in surgery as well as a bunch of other specialties in vet medicine, just like yeah. human medicine. And the, the surgical residencies are super competitive, really hard to get. Yeah. Um, And it's, you know, it's someone's got to do it. That's cool. I don't know that I was ever I was never that interested in it. <laughs> I, I dated a veterinarian and her specialties were we did it for a few years her specialties were um spay and neuter like okay. she was so quick at it oh yeah she probably and, do it in like six minutes oh less than that yeah. like um and so it was you know it was scary just being around her like you know getting in a disagreement or whatever because she also did home euthanasia as well so she had just all the things just like laying around the apartment just things for killing and <laughs> and so it was like I was always on my best behavior, but it was kind of intense. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's the that that's what all of the that's all the prestige is just wow, that person's great with a scalpel. Like uh, what? I don't. Yeah. I don't care. Well, it'll, don't, I'll be interested to uh, see. So, like, we um, at UT we have a dual. Uh, Doctorate of Veterinary Medicine and Master's of Public Health program. And I'll be curious to see with our incoming classes if we end up with more students doing the dual program with the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Because we typically have like between three and five in each of the classes that decide to go that route. And it'll be Mm -hmm. interesting to see if this. So our first year, first years are starting orientation, I guess, next week. And it'll be interesting to see how many of them are like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. That's way cooler than surgery. But <laughs> what what's going on with uh, what's going on with COVID and and um, zoonosis? There was there was talk early on that dogs were maybe getting it. And is there any? Has there been any? Yeah. So there it, there have been other animals that have ended up getting it from people. Um, the, I see. the biggest and so basically it originally spilled into people, and then then people are giving it back out to other animals. Um, yeah. The ones that's been the biggest issue have been uh, mink. So, uh, 
I oh, never, did I just see yeah. something? Like, who knew Is there were so I, many mink farms? There's mink farms all over the place, like in Europe I, as well as in the United States. And so, basically, the the corona the COVID got into um, these mink farms, and it started mutating and actually spilled back into some people. And so, this happened initially in, in Denmark, but also a bunch of other European countries wow. as well. And so, they have gone in and they actually culled all those mink in the farms. And they're wow. starting to, um, I think they've maybe developed a vaccine or they're in the process of, de- of developing a vaccine for the mink. Um, so they're the ones that's been the biggest issue. There have been a few cases in cats. And so domestic cats, as well as big cats in zoos. Um, there have been a few dogs that have been diagnosed with it, but they weren't actually sick. And so like they got mm. exposed, they ended up with antibodies, maybe even a little bit of virus, but they didn't actually get sick from it. So the only, the only animals that have actually gotten sick from it have been felids like a variety of cat species, and then also um, mink. And I'm trying to think if there's been any ferret cases, but basically the mustelids, which include mink. But those have been the biggest mm-hmm. one that they've had to call a bunch. But I, when they those reports started coming out last year, I was like, How, why are there so many what, mink farms? What's up with minks? Well, now, well, you must know now, right? What What is it? We're just, people are just wearing, wearing mink. Who, who wears fur the... anymore? No, yeah, that's it is strange. Plus, specifically, mink. It's like, yeah, huh? I mean, it's uh, not so in terms of them being susceptible to a respiratory pathogen. It's not that surprising. So, um, ferrets. So, like domestic ferrets that people have as pets. Those are routinely yeah. used in influenza research, and so they're closely related to mink. And so their respiratory, um, you know, basically anatomy and receptors are really similar to ours, and so. They're, they've been used for research in flu for a long time. And so when it spilled into them, I was like, oh, it's not that surprising, but it's kind of weird. I was more surprised by how many mink farms there are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think about, um, if I can have a just utterly nonsense conversation with you, since we've been talking about domesticating things, <laughs> ferrets, what do, you, what do you think about pet ferrets? Into it, against it? Um, I don't have a problem with it. I would never own one because they smell terrible. Yeah. Um, the biggest issue is they're answer. so inbred is that they they all get disease. They all get adrenal tumors. They get insulinomas. They get and so they're like little cancer factories because they've been inbred. At least here in the United yeah. States, there's like basically one big producer of them. Um, and so like when you get a ferret, you need to go ahead and have a savings account to pay for all the treatment you're going to have to deal with in like three to four years because they pretty much all get these cancers. So, I mean, yeah, they're not it must bad. It's so pets, weird but... to be at a party and be like, what do you do? And they're like, I am the only ferret producer in <laughs> North America, the Western hemisphere. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, look at you. Um, wh- what about the, all right. I'm curious what you think about. I've been thinking about oddball critters to have around the house and just what's reasonable and what's not. There's, according to Instagram pictures and video, which is misleading, of course, no. um, <laughs> raccoons are kind of having a day right now. I feel like raccoons are like getting more and more popular. Seems like a bad idea, right? It's a bad like idea. They can, they're super smart and everything. And well, they they're smart, everything. but like they, they're wild animals. And so they, yeah. they're not domesticated. And so basically the way that people control them um, is they bribe them with food and then they end up really fat 
then they end up with mm. diabetes or thyroid issues. And so they're bad idea. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Bad idea. All right. No, no to raccoons. No what raccoons. about this is one just started springing up. Um, flying squirrels. Uh, do you mean sugar gliders or flying sure. squirrels? Okay. I think I mean sugar gliders. So sugar gliders have been in the know. pet trade for a while. Okay. Okay. No. Are we are we into it? No. <laughs> no. I mean, there's some great videos. Oh, oh yeah, sure that's what they are. So they're, I mean, so they're nocturnal for one thing. So if you yeah. are not also nocturnal, that's not really mm. the best pet. Um, okay. If you only have yeah. a single sugar glider, they often mutilate themselves. And so, like, oh my god, yeah. So like, if you have a male, he will routinely like chew bits of himself off. Well, that's kind of not an unusual thing in species that are not like in pets. cages, like by themselves. Well, or whatever, sure, they'll right? do neurotic like things, but some... they don't necessarily like chew off parts of themselves. They may like, wow, you know. But so, if you're gonna have a sugar glider, you need to have two usually. So they've got a yeah. Buddy. Usually, you see like four on the videos, and they're like hanging out on a basketball hoop, and then someone just holds their hand out, and, and then they jump and glide into their hand, and it. It looks fantastic. It looks you can really see fun. the appeal, they, but they, it's like they're not house also trained. babies look fun in photos, and I know that <laughs> no thank not you. True. Um Yeah, so I'm gonna give them a thumbs down too. Okay. You got any you got any outliers that you're like, you know what? That would be an okay. Well, so I, I didn't so I did a residency in zoo and exotic medicine before I went the public health route. And so okay. I've got all kinds of experience working with these exotic animals. And so in terms of exotic what considers exotic pets. And so that's like pretty much anything, not dog, cat. This is going to make people cringe, but one of my favorites that falls into that, and it's not really a wild animal are rats. Rats yeah, actually make really rats. good pets. Yeah. They're, I'm into they're that. smart. They're cute. They're so, sometimes they've been bred to have like these big goofy Dumbo ears. They'll have different oh, colors. Yeah. Um, and so usually if someone wants to get a different animal, that's usually what I recommend because they're they're generally pretty clean. It's everyone can't get past that tail though. It's like oh the tail's so gross. It's like yeah you'll get past it. It's fine. But they're actually yeah. one of my favorite non-normal pets. I had a turtle for a while. That was pretty easy. It was an easy one. It is easy, I, but you've got to get it right. It didn't do a lot for me. Yeah, you've got to get it right yeah. though with like their temperature and the humidity and the light. Like if you screw that up, their shell gets all wonky and they don't mm. develop right still alive as far as i know never grew maybe that's maybe that's why yeah i just visited uh like two years ago and it was still it was so, still kicking mm -hmm. 15 years later or something like that small little thing fits in your hand in a little aquarium you can leave for days and just dump some food in there seem fine maybe i'm not supposed to do that maybe you're not supposed to tell that uh to someone in veterinary medicine that you just dump food in there and leave for a few days. Well, but I mean, turtles are, it seemed like super easy. As long as you've got the light, right. And you, yeah, then they can be pretty good. It does, making sure they've got enough UV light. That's correct. Is, is the challenge that, cause then they, their bones don't develop right. And their shell gets all messed up. Um, and they're also mm. salmonella carriers. So turtles. What's wh okay. What's the, What's the worst thing about backyard chickens? If people, because I felt like we are pretty pro backyard chicken. On um, this show. Probably the worst thing about them is that you do have to take care of them every day. You can't just like abandon them. 
um, mm-hmm. for a week. And honestly, the the potential for salmonella is probably the biggest issue. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're really right. easy birds to work with, though. Like, they don't attack you. They don't. Well, maybe a rooster will occasionally, but they're they're pretty easy. All right. That's uh, I think that's a lot of go with the chickens, not the goats. Yeah, I think that's a lot of pro chicken propaganda that we've <laughs> that we've spread. I think they're not yeah, supporting me. I don't get any kickbacks. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Well, this has been really fun, Marcy. Yeah, it has um, been. <laughs> thanks for joining me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, thanks for all the work that you do. And that's really cool. If people want to learn more about say um say they're in tennessee or whatever they want to learn more about habit which is human animal bond in tennessee mm-hmm. is that right where do they go uh do a google search for human animal bond in tennessee i think our website is probably habit.utk.edu if i remember correctly okay well i'll, I'll just put it in the i'll put it in all the stuff yeah the i can uh, i think it's habit.utk.edu but yeah so we do um, if you are interested in volunteering with your dog, we do um, orientations a couple times a year. And now with COVID hopefully slowly receding, um, we are getting people back out visiting. So we had to pull back a lot of those visitors when, you know, people didn't want volunteers coming in their facilities that were, who knows what they might have been carrying. Yeah. You think slowly receding? I think making a comeback. Well, let me I think, rephrase that. Uh, I think fall and winter is going to be Let me rephrase it. By rough. the time you get this edited and put out... <laughs> I'm yeah. hoping. Well, so yeah, so right now, I mean, we're talking, this is early August. Things are not good. Um, we're yeah. basically on the upswing, a lot of parts of the country. Um, you know, a lot of the predictions are saying that this upswing is going to go for about four to six weeks and we'll get another lull. And then come December, we're going to have another surge mm. again. So mm. we'll see. Okay. Well, it seems like heat. A lot of it's happening in the south, right? You got heat. You got people indoors with air conditioning. That's got to be a factor. And a Higher lot of unvaccinated. Unvaccinated rate. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. Vaccine rates are okay. not great down here. Right. Right. So. Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we will. Um, uh, well, it was absolutely lovely talking with you. Me too. Marcy Souza, everybody. Souza, right? Souza. Souza. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Marcy <laughs> Souza. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week.